Hey folks, normally this is where I would say, welcome back to Astonishing Legends, but not tonight. Tonight we have a very special premiere for you guys. This week would normally have been a dark week for Astonishing Legends anyway, so you might consider this bonus content, but in reality, it is so much more than that. Tonight we're proud to bring you the first episode of a show we've been working diligently to create for the past two years, The Midnight Library. A place where you'll hear some deliciously dark tales. You may wonder how it came to be. Well, a while back, Forrest and I were invited in a rather mysterious fashion, a letter in the post, to meet with two people. Those people have since become the hosts of the show, Miranda Merrick and Mr. Darling. We took a chance, accepted the invitation, traveled some distance to meet with them, and what blossomed out of that meeting is the Midnight Library. Not just a show, but a place you can go. Working with our very own in-house producer, Tess Feifel, we all wanted to bring you something completely new, different entirely from what everyone else seems to be doing these days, and in a more compact form. When you finish listening, please be sure and subscribe to the Midnight Library wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, put on your headphones, turn down the lights, and let Mr. Darling safely escort you to the reading room to enjoy Miranda's tour of the Paris Catacombs in tonight's episode. We're sure you'll be fine. The story you're about to enjoy is a factual tale, read to you from a fictional location. We believe. Can you believe it, Mr. Darling? It's like a miracle. The Village Council was always dead set against our opening the Midnight Library for private readings. Now, seemingly overnight, They've had a valiant change of heart. Well then, madam, I suppose it is a miracle and a blessing. Now, what else needs tending to before we are to receive our guests? Well, darling, the fall leaves need to be swept from the library's front steps and the veranda. Those tapestries could certainly use the dust beaten out of them. And, uh, oh yes, see that the wax pentagram is scraped from the floor of the gallery room, won't you please? My pleasure, madam. Madam, I implore you one last time. Must we entertain these common town people in our private rooms? It's bad enough they're in the main library. Bunch of prying looky-loos. Can't wait to get their boogery fingers all over your personal manuscripts. Darling, you know perfectly well these people are a necessary evil, especially with all the rumors in the village of heinous happenings in our precious library. Not to mention the suspicious characters of its... Uh, Inhabitants herein. Oh, that. Point taken, madam. By the way, they're here. I can smell them. Please, Mr. Darling, show them to the reading room. As you wish, madam. Ladies and gentlemen, Ms. Miranda Merrick, head librarian and master of special collections, here at the Midnight Library. Thank you, Mr. Darling. Welcome, everyone. Thank you for coming to hear tonight's story. We're so happy to have you as our guests in the Midnight Library. Please settle in and make yourselves comfortable. We're about to begin. I've chosen for you a story that is both short and ghoulish, so not unlike your host, really. Tonight, I thought we might visit those who cannot visit us, and some of you would say thankfully so. Tonight, 
I thought we should visit the Paris catacombs, home to over six million human skeletons. But first, a little mystery. I ask you, dear guests, in France in the year 1793, what would cause a 62-year-old gainfully employed doorman at the respected Val de Grasse Hospital, Philibert Esper, an otherwise coherent gentleman, to suddenly and voluntarily set off with only a lit candle in hand to excitedly go far beneath the busy streets of Paris to wander and probe the blackened, corpse-filled passages? never to return again. What could possibly be so irresistible? As we enter at street level and walk out of the bright warming sunlight of the day, we step into a stony shadowed alcove and pass through a seven foot tall, heavy wrought iron gate. Beneath our feet, a dirty stone path begins to slope ever so gently downward. And a damp chill is now all about us as the way ahead darkens. The catacombs are located 65 feet below the homes, businesses, and streets of the city of Paris, France. The dim meandering tunnels that hold the countless old bones wind and trail for a distance of more than 200 miles. Initially, the tunnels themselves were created by the mining of limestone in the 13th century. This quarried stone was then used to lay the very foundation of the city of Paris, which would later become known as the most romantic city in the world. But we aren't here so much for romance. We have come for the bones. At one point in time, it was customary for burial grounds to be located outside of the city limits. However, as Paris began to grow, these set boundaries would begin to move and change. In fact, that was the problem indeed for Paris in the early centuries, where to bury all the dead and dying citizens of this newly flourishing city. For over 400 years, between the 13th and 18th centuries, the dead of Paris and its surrounding countryside were buried in 40 different cemeteries in and around the city. The most popular and largest of these was called St. Innocence, Les Innocents or The Innocents. It was the most popular because those buried inside its encompassing walls were guaranteed a Christian burial, a much-coveted thing for the majority of the city's residents. Then, in the 16th century, Paris experienced a prolific population boom. However, while at this time it was easy and fun to make people, it was terribly difficult to keep them alive. This was due to incurable diseases, unbelievably hard work and harsh living conditions, pestilence, poverty, war, and malnutrition. By the 17th century, the cemeteries were nearly filled to capacity. Many of the dead without coffins, the ones simply wrapped in a shroud, were crowded in together, one over the other, or positioned tightly up against each other. So even if you didn't partake of the proverbial love-thy-neighbor philosophy while you were alive, you may find yourself intimately intertwined with him in the afterlife. Many graves were so improperly shallow, the hastily built, flimsy wooden coffins would show through the surface of the ground, oftentimes exposing the corpse therein. The citizens, of course, began to notice and complain of horrible odors wafting from the nearby burial sites. These deplorable treatments of a corpse may sound impossible, 
But dear guests, the art of the modern burial ceremony has become fixed in our minds. We envision the modern funeral home, with its acoustically pleasing music and wall-to-wall fresh flowers, all gifted to today's newly deceased. Their lifeless bodies are sanitized, all sweet, all expertly filled with preserving embalming fluids, their mouths neatly sewn shut, their lips worked into a serene smile. Our dead are oh so tastefully dressed in their best, with their hair caringly styled, and a stiff coat of tinted makeup is artfully applied to liven up their bloodless faces and hands. When they look pretty enough for viewing, they're gently tucked inside a just-the-right-size, silky-cushioned, exorbitantly expensive, seafoam-green eternal lounger casket, complete with sparkling gold-hinged handles. They spend their last few hours beautifully on display for their heartbroken loved ones, only to be chauffeured off in a luxurious gleaming black limousine. When they reach their final destination, reposing inside their lush new coffin, they are gently lowered six feet down into a protective solid concrete vault that will tightly close to secure the deceased's resting place. There they will lie undisturbed in tranquil silence forever. But when it came to burials in 17th century France, this was not that. Centuries ago, the typical corpse was not washed or embalmed and began to decompose almost immediately. If they were furnished a coffin, it was made of untreated wood that would begin to dissolve along with its dead inhabitant fairly quickly. And there were certainly no concrete faults to slow and contain the outgassing and bodily fluids of a decaying body. For this reason, the putrid odors continually drifted from the literally packed, gruesome graveyards. So if you've ever experienced the nauseating, instantly repulsive smell of a dead, leaky, swollen groundhog, imagine thousands of them. The condition of the dead in St. Innocent's Cemetery was beyond deplorable. It wasn't just overcrowded. It was bursting with dead bodies. Back in the 12th century, people buried there had designated individual graves. But the popular religious cemetery soon became full, with more people wanting the inexpensive holy plots. So, the individual graves were done away with, and a huge mass burial pit was created. And then many of them. A pit would hold about 1,500 bodies, and would remain open until it was full. It would then be closed over, and another huge pit would be dug and readied for the same process. After roughly 30 years, the first pit would be reopened. The skeletal remains from that pit would be put into a charter house. Many of these charter houses surrounded the large cemetery, and the emptied pit would be ready for another 1,500 bodies. St. Innocent's had about 30 of these pits that were continually filled and refilled every 30 years or so, for 500 years. Then, in the spring of 1780, the unthinkable happened. Torrential downpours of rain began the flooding of Paris. The powerful rushing waters caused a wall surrounding the St. Innocent's Cemetery to collapse and wash away. 
The drenched grounds of the cemetery became a veritable mud slough, and a sludge river of thousands of rotting corpses spilled into the nearby shops and homes. Paris desperately needed a solution. There are conflicting opinions about whom to credit for the idea. Some sources cite King Louis XVI and some say Napoleon, but in 1786 the abandoned limestone quarries were blessed and consecrated, and the 13th century tunnels were consigned to house the dead. This was the solution that saved Paris from the nightmare conditions of its genuinely frightful cemeteries. And so the bones began to move. Each night throughout the various cemeteries, a sort of dark ritual began to take place. Groups of men, gravediggers, would arrive in the graveyards, the ones that still had individual graves, with a large open wagon or cart. They would then dig up the dead, one by one, removing them from their coffins and stacking the bare bones onto the cart until it was heaping with human skeletons. At St. Innocent's, the charter houses were emptied of their long dead, and the remaining mass burial pits were culled of their corpses. And because the dead there had had a Christian burial, a solitary priest would accompany the corpse-filled cart as it was pulled along the darkened city streets the priest ceremoniously praying for the souls of the newly disturbed dead, all the while. Embedded in the paved city streets here and there along the way were long shafts with grated openings to allow a bit of light and ventilation to the tunnels far below. When the gravedigger, the praying priest, and the cart with its horrific heavy load of human corpses would arrive at its appointed open shaft, the cart was ungated at one end and swiftly tipped up at the other. Then the entire mound of entangled bones would very unceremoniously slide, unmasked, down into the shaft, landing together in an unholy crash of mangled remains beneath the sleeping city. This macabre scene played out night after night, over and over again, for more than a decade until the millions of skeletal remains were transported and dumped into the belly of Paris. Tonight's reading at the Midnight Library is brought to you by Father Philbrook's Bonafide Bone Filament. Imagine, no more stray mandibles in your mashed potatoes, no more tailbones in your tea. Keep the skeleton in your closet in one piece with Father Philbrook's Bonafide Bone Filament. Trust Father Philbrook. The old subterranean quarries with all their space, miles and miles of empty roaming tunnels, and the newly dumped corpses intermittently heaped high here and there along them, weren't just forgotten. They were to be managed. A knowledgeable man of many talents and an aristocratic background, Hercard de Terry was given the title Inspector of Quarries. The appointment of this man to this position was a brilliant decision. Hercard de Terry was a politically active, learned man. A scientist and a mining engineer, he had first-hand intimate knowledge of the quarry system. He understood its potential. 
In 1810, he began work to make the site accessible to visitors, making it an actual tourist attraction. It was then decided that the bones would be methodically organized and arranged into displays along the tunnels for visitors to behold. And what a sight the bones are to behold! The long bones, being some of the most durable bones of the human body, make up the bulk of the displays. They're artfully stacked floor to ceiling with the joints facing outward in the style of stacked firewood. For long stretches along the corridors, the skulls, mostly without lower jaws, are positioned side by side, hundreds of them, in and amongst the long bones, in straight rows, up and down curves, arranged into crosses, circles, and even heart-shaped patterns. There are alcoves and galleries that bear the bones in a spectacular typesetting. There are plaques that commemorate particular remains and still other plaques that remind the visitor that they too will one day be as the ones they see. Some of the skulls have a shine that glints off them from the modern lighting just overhead, evidence of where thousands of live passers-by have dragged their oily fingertips across the faces of the dead. Some of the skulls are missing teeth from their upper mandible, where visitors have prized them loose to keep as a stolen souvenir. The catacombs are both at once a mournful, eternal place of holiness and an ungodly, nightmarish horror. As for myself, I think, my God, so many bones, so many people, each person once as alive as you and me, each one unique, each one cradled in the arms of another as a newborn baby, full of great potential. Some of them reached it, some did not. Some were terrible, hate-filled people. Some were soulful, gentle lovers. But most likely all of them, at least one time, had that most human desire to love and to be loved. For this alone, they deserve our respect. Many countries around the world have their own versions of catacombs. However, the Paris catacombs are unique in several ways. They house the largest collection of human skeletal remains of any ossuary on the face of the earth. Some of the catacombs' bones are noticeably coated in a prominent rich green growth. Scrapings taken from them have been scientifically studied, and the bones are proven to be host to three entirely unique species of bacterial mold. Yuck! It is also rumored that royal remains may be mixed in amongst the millions of random old bones. This is due to the fact that in 1815, King Louis XVIII decreed that his beheaded brother and sister-in-law, the former king and queen, you may know them as King Louis XVI and Marie Antoinette, should be removed from their graves in Madeleine Cemetery and given royal burials in Basilica Saint-Denis. And while some servants claimed that they could definitely recognize the old skulls of the beheaded king and queen by their smiles, it is believed that two random skeletons were taken from the burial pit to obey the king's order, while the actual king and queen are anonymously there. 
silently peering out at us with all the other empty eye sockets. The Paris catacombs are a very popular tourist attraction, especially for those of us who enjoy such things, but not all areas of the vast network of tunnels are open to the public. Only a small percentage of the miles of bones are on the official tour. Old, unsafe, and prohibited parts of the catacombs still have ghastly heaps of broken bones that are in too poor of condition to be put on display. People who illegally explore the off-limits hidden shafts, rooms, and tunnels are called cataphiles. They sneak in through secret passages to forbidden areas with their flashlights and their hiking boots, further grinding the smaller bones into dust underfoot. Tonight's reading at the Midnight Library is brought to you by Brother Burgess's Bone Broth, secretly harvested, secretly simmered, available in stone crocks as well as frozen into popsicles for a summertime treat. Brother Burgess's Bone Broth, the family recipe is none of your business. And now, my dear guests, the question is, How do we each envision our own inevitable eternities? What remains for our remains? In times more closely to current than past, many people whose lives ended by means of murder, be it state-enforced or typical misfortune, often came to quite grisly conclusions. Those who were beheaded were sometimes buried with their departed head under their arm or simply tossed into the grave with them. However, if you committed a particularly reprehensible crime against your country or king, your freshly severed head was jammed onto a spike and placed upright on the castle entrance wall in order to serve as a warning and discourage others from attempting your infraction or any others. Those who were murdered covertly were sometimes left where the crime was committed due to the fact that in early times it was basically impossible to prove just who it was who ended you. But if several people conspired together and swore that they witnessed who it was that committed the murder, that person, guilty or not, was likely to be convicted, leading to two travesties of justice being committed. Persons who were poisoned which was popular for hundreds of years due to the fact that it was undetectable for the longest time, were often just buried with the assumption that they had heart conditions, unknown illnesses, or tons of other internal malfunctions. Their crafty murderers often played the part of the deeply bereaved loved one, then absconding with all of the victim's money and worldly possessions. Ah, the good old days. My point is, it's better to have a plan for when you finally escape your human cage. Why run the risk of having your lovely corpse forced into a tacky setting by a relative you can barely tolerate? Or worse yet, dressed in hideous fashion for all of eternity? I invite you to take the upper hand in the matter and make certain that you get the setting and eternal ensemble your heart desires before it stops. So, my dear guests, what about our mysterious friend, Philibert Asperre? What was it that was so irresistible to him that he hurried off to his doom with only a single candle to guide him? What seductive rumor enticed him so immediately that he simply could not resist? 
Why, the whispered rumor of forbidden fruit, my friends, in the form of a rare and secret wine concealed within the remote location of the catacombs. This wine, so unique, so rare, and so delicious, was only meant for royalty, noblemen, and perhaps the clergy for sacrament. And our friend Philibert thought it should be for him, too. Only he lost his life in pursuit of it. The story goes that the bare-bone remains of Philibert himself were found a full eleven years later in an obscure region of the tunnels only steps away from an unused exit. And although he may have appeared to be just another standard skeleton, his identity was sadly confirmed by the now useless leather belt encircling his bare spine with his keys to the Val de Grasse Hospital securely attached to it. We know we can trust that there is at least some truth to the story of our Monsieur Asper, because there is indeed a tombstone inscribed with a brief telling of the tale at the very spot in the catacombs where he was found. Another delicious detail purports that he was discovered with a single sealed bottle of his heart's desire, that fine, fine wine, clutched in his bony hand. I love happy endings, don't you, my guests? As for me, I'm yet to decide. Perhaps I'll request to be put in the little graveyard here on the grounds of the Midnight Library, it's a beautifully dreary little cemetery with a mysterious will-o'-the-wisp glow and the ghost of a sea captain who misses the ocean is said to stare out at the North Sea from atop his tombstone. Alternatively, I'd have had a kind offer from a dear friend who has it in mind to mechanize my freshly bleached bones and put me in my own one-woman dead show. He says he plans to force my skeleton to do all manner of things I refuse to do in real life, like bake. He teases me and says he won't even provide my skeleton with a mixer. It'll just be my motorized, spinny, bony hand stirring the batter for some hellish little cupcakes. Yes, Mr. Darling? Madam, it's time for our guest to depart. A raging storm is blowing in off the North Sea at this very moment, and we wouldn't want any horrific tragedy to befall them on the road now, would we? Heavens no, Mr. Darling. My dear guest, thank you so much for visiting us here at the Midnight Library this fine night. We have some recommended reading suggestions for you, as well as a delicious bone broth recipe that tonight's subject has no doubt caused you to crave. Mr. Darling will kindly usher you out to our information desk and see you safely to the exit. Won't you, Mr. Darling? I imagine so, madam. Mr. Darling, this reading has caused me to go all daydreamy. Couldn't we begin a tradition of a little catacomb of our own? Hmm. We do have an immense cavern beneath the Midnight Library, madam. And you know I like to see you happy. Oh, but grave robbing would conflict with the library schedule and ruin our shoes. What can we do, darling? I'll have to think on it, madam. But in the meantime, I suggest we invite more guests. Many more. Mr. Darling, you are brilliant. Hmm. 
The Midnight Library is co-produced by Tess Feifel and Astonishing Legends Productions. No part of the show may be reproduced in any manner without express written consent. All rights reserved.